This is Kelly Goff of The Daily Beast, and welcome to Left, Right, and Center, your civilized yet provocative antidote to the self-contained opinion bubbles that dominate political debate. Josh Barrow is away this week. It's the first week of June, and what a week it's been. The aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, a black man, by a white police officer who now faces murder charges, set off a wave of peaceful protests nationwide. It also resulted in incidents of violence, with police officers blamed for using unnecessarily brutal methods to clear activists, while others have been accused of using the guise of activism to destroy and steal property. Meanwhile, the president's response to recent events elicited criticism from some surprising sources. And against this backdrop, another round of political primaries. Now let's bring in our left, right, and center panel. This week, I'm your center, and I'm joined by Christine Emba, columnist at the Washington Post on the left. And on the right, Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee and host of the Michael Steele podcast. And our special guest today is Robert A. George, columnist at the New York Daily News. Thanks so much for joining us today, everyone. Good to be here. Great to be here. Great to be here. So for listeners who don't know, I am African-American, and I mention that because it's relevant to what I'm about to say, which is that I received a number of emails and texts and calls this week from friends just checking in to see how I've been doing emotionally, including a number of white friends, some of whom I hadn't heard from in a while, who just reached out to say, I hope you're okay, and let me know if there's something I can do to make things more okay. And I was reflecting on the last time I heard from this many people who felt the need to say, I want to make sure you're safe and I want to make sure you know that your health and safety matters to me. The last time that really happened was after 9-11 because I was living in New York then. But for people outside of New York, it represented a seismic shift that affected every aspect of our daily lives and and, and has since that moment, including our political landscape. So I wanted to to ask all of you, do you sense that the events of the last week represent a similar seismic shift? Will we look back and remember an America before George Floyd and an America after? Michael, I'll start with you. Well, it's funny you say that. You know, I hadn't even thought about that. But I, I too, got these, like, out of the blue, where did this come from kind of emails from people that I knew saying, is everything okay? How are you and your sons? And I never connected that dot that, you know, the way you just did. So um, it, it tells me uh, that this moment uh, has touched people unlike other moments that we've been in before uh, the, the killing of Trayvon Martin, Freddie Gray, uh, et cetera, that people feel uh, something different about this. Now, you know, I had someone say to me, oh, well, you know, it's a combination of being locked up and coronavirus and, you know, everything's kind of heightened. I don't think that is this. I think it was the raw brutality of what they witnessed for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Mm. You were a part of the killing of another human being and you could not walk away from it. You could not turn your eyes away from it because in that moment you realized your own humanity. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so I think that, uh, yeah, this is as big an event in that, in that sense as a 9-11 because it galvanizes the nation's attention on something horrific. And, and the first inclination response feeling is, what do I do? And so for a lot of my white friends, it was reaching out to me to go, are you okay? How are your sons? 
I remember you telling me about the conversation you had to have with your boys when they were younger, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's good in that sense. Now the question becomes, how does this play itself out? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think the hard part for us, Kelly, and I'd love to hear what everyone else thinks about this part of it, it's, it's going to be hard to strip the politics out of this because it has unfortunately been infused in a way in which we actually can lose sight of the humanity involved here. The fact that uh, George Floyd is dead and he died at the hands of another person um, and, and it's part of a series of, of deaths that have occurred this way that speaks about an entire system. Uh, and, and that part of it I'm, I'm concerned about, that we lose sight of what the mission calls for at this point because we let politics get in the way. Christine, does this feel like a seismic shift for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm of two minds. I mean, first of all, we, we have to note that, you know, there have been protests in 50 states uh, in 18 plus countries. This is the biggest civil rights demonstration that has, you know, happened in the history of America. I mean, just thinking about the international ramifications, let alone the national ones. In the Netherlands, I hear that Zwart Piet, a sort of culturally sanctioned form of Christmas blackface, uh, has been spoken out about by the prime minister. Uh, In our own cities, obviously, we see thousands and thousands of people marching, having, as Michael just said, really seen the reality of police brutality and violence with their own eyes and saying that they're not going to take it anymore. So I do think that this this growing realization is big and the breadth of it is different uh, from the protests that we have witnessed in the past over and over again as these events have happened over and over again. But I've also, you know, been getting some of these texts from friends, uh, from white friends who want to be an ally. And this brings me to, you know, my second more questioning viewpoint of what is going to happen going forward. I am very pleased that people are becoming aware of the problems of uh, systemic racism in our society uh, and realizing the reality of police brutality. Um, I'm a little bit alarmed, frankly, that it has taken people so long and for such a, a blunt instrument to introduce them to this truth that we have known and that has been, you know, floating around for ages. It's one thing, you know, for my white friends to text and ask how I'm doing, um, but it's another to make real change, the change that will be seismic going forward. It's one thing to text. It's another thing to advocate for affordable housing in your neighborhood and not worry about your property values. Mm. It's one thing to post something on Instagram. Uh, It's another thing to send your child to a public school instead of hoarding resources. So I am waiting to see what people do in their real life once the marching dies down, once the black boxes fade from Instagram feeds, because that's what's going to make a difference going forward. Robert? This is a very difficult question uh, to get your hand around because, I mean, like my other colleagues, I've I've had uh, you know friends and acquaintances kind of reach out to me. With part of it is the sort of checking in how you're doing part, and but part of it is uh, uh, as we just said, uh, what can we do? Which then becomes that kind of creates the the conversation that I think all black people go through uh, several times in their life, where something like this happens, 
and your white friends start to come to you and you you start to resort, um, fall back into the mode of, you know, sort of uh, confessor, explainer kind of thing. And sometimes... Sometimes that's welcome because you want to you want to help advance the conversation. You want to help society and so forth. Sometimes it gets, uh, dare I say it, kind of tedious because you don't always feel you're not always in the right mood for being uh, uh, explaining being black in America and 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 so forth. Because sometimes you just want to be you know living your life in America as just a normal person that has. Uh, regular you know regular things of like you know going 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 to work uh, you know uh taking care of taking taking care taking care of your kids so that's kind of interesting uh however while i uh, um i do take uh some kind of encouragement about how nationwide this is um and how global and how global this is uh, it's definitely a moment that many people will be, will keep in mind. I do want to caution that uh, this has already been a year like 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 we can't really we we can't recall. Somebody pointed this out. It's four months. Uh, Friday is four months to the day that Donald Trump was acquitted in the U.S. Senate. I mean, that <laughs> that didn't happen several years ago. That happened four <laughs> months ago. Um, we had a pandemic, we, which we are still, which we are still in. The, it was the pandemic, which was the nine one one moment, was supposedly the nine one one moment for this generation. And now we have this. We've had this horrif this horrifying um, video that we've, we've seen of a of a of a of a man of a man dying, and it seems to have galvanized um, society, but. Um, in 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 our incredible um, ADD ADHD um, hyper social media um, society, um, I fear that uh, two or three weeks from now uh, there's be yet another unexpected moment that is going to send the society into a completely different direction, and I, God help us. Um, George Floyd is going to um, recede into memory, and all of this so social energy and activism um, may just move on to the next thing. I really hope you're wrong, mainly because I don't feel like 2020 can take much more. I feel like we've kind of, you know what I mean. I feel, Please. I feel like we've kind of packed in a lot into this one year. I mean, someone actually joked and said um, when there was a, I guess there was a, a spat between some 90s celebrities and someone said 2020 finally gave up and decided to just go back to the 90s because it was so <laughs> exhausted. Was <laughs> it was so exhausted. Um, you, you've all kind of mentioned the potential political changes and fallout um, from the events of the last couple of weeks. And, and kind of going back to the 9-11 analogy, one of the biggest changes that came after that was the Patriot Act and the shift towards mm -hmm. a lessening of civil liberties in the name of keeping our country safe. After recent events, however, I'm sensing a groundswell a bit in the other direction with people expressing concerns about the overreach of government in terms of the police and the military. Before we get to the military, let's start with the police. Will Smith has been quoted a lot this week, um, probably more than he ever has before, because he famously said in an interview, um, racism is not getting worse, it's getting filmed. 
um, after video surfaced five years ago of Walter Scott, a black man being shot in the back by an officer who lied about the events of that day. There was a groundswell of support among conservatives like John McCain, John Boehner, and others who began advocating for body cameras. What I want to ask is, do you think that George Floyd's death will become the catalyst for more police reform and oversight? Because 10 years ago, criminal justice reform was essentially a liberal fringe issue, and now it's considered a mainstream bipartisan issue. Could police reform soon become a bipartisan mainstream issue, Michael? Oh, absolutely. Uh, It will, by the very force of the events involved here, uh, there's going to be a wholesale review of of police uh, training uh, regulations affecting uh, command and control in the field, how they operationalize um, riots, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there's going to be a lot. It has to be. You, you, cannot, you cannot get uh, past this moment um, and, and not have it continue to tag along. In other words, in these other, in these other instances, um, you didn't have just the stark imagery. You didn't have the video evidence to the degree that you have here you didn't have the concentration of that moment the way we have and and i think coronavirus contributed to that because people were pretty much on lockdown they weren't at their offices busy with other things when this video first hit the streets and and all of these other distractions so people had a chance to really concentrate on it and now for the last two weeks have formed an opinion about it. And it's going to be, I think, hard to undo that opinion. And it is, you're already beginning to hear and see at the municipal level, mm-hmm. mayors and, and uh, council, members, council members and state legislators talking about looking a little bit more deeply at that, uh, the kinds of reforms that will be ne- necessary, starting with the demilitarization of our police. Post 9-11, and it's important that you noted 9-11 as a reference point, uh, as a comparative point. After 9-11, um, what, did, what happened? The military, the government, federal government, in, in concert with state governments, decided, hey, take our excess hardware, um, and, and now you can protect the homeland closer to home. Uh, and all of a sudden, you had police <laughs> with all kinds of crazy firepower um, mm-hmm. at their disposal, which they seemingly have no problem using <laughs> on the populace. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, all of that's going to get reviewed, and it should. Christine, I want to bring you in specifically in the conversation about the military. President Trump wanted to use the Insurrection Act to authorize increased military presence in support of the police to contain protest. He received pushback from a number of senior military officials, which we're going to get into. Um, But I wanted to start with uh, the fallout from Senator Tom Cotton's op-ed in The Times. We're going to kind of talk big picture media a bit later in the show. Um, But specifically, the substance of the op-ed itself, Senator Cotton's a veteran, and he essentially made the argument that sometimes you need the military to restore calm. That's what the military did when there were were riots opposing integration, he argues. And just because many of us agree with the arguments behind these particular protests, that doesn't mean mobilizing the military to restore stability is wrong. I need to add that in his New York Times op-ed, Senator Cotton cited data that found nearly half of Democrats and almost 40 percent of African-Americans 
do not oppose having the military come in to restore calm. I've personally wondered if that's because a lot of black Americans serve in the military. So perhaps the military actually feels less threatening than the police. Just a theory. But Christine, what do you make of Senator Cotton's argument? Well, to be totally frank, I thought that Senator Cotton's argument and the fact that it was in fact published in the New York Times was uh, ridiculous, laughable, and potentially dangerous uh, to those people who are on the streets uh, right now who are peacefully protesting, even who are protesting less peacefully than we might prefer, but whose opponents will you know, see um, statements like this in a paper of record as an excuse uh, to act more forcefully, to bring down unnecessary military power and violence against them. Um, I think we need to be very clear, and in fact, there has been um, a bubbling up of discontent from uh, high-ranking military officials and ex-military officials that there is a difference between a military force and a police force. Mm -hmm. Uh, The military is supposed to protect the American public, uh, not fight the American public, not put down uh, the protests of the American public. The fact that Tom Cotton is essentially arguing that part of our country, our defense forces, should be weaponized against uh, another part of our country is frightening and highly inappropriate. Um, I would also tack back very quickly to your prior question about bipartisan uh, support for uh, police reforms. We should note that, you know, speaking of bipartisanship, uh, Justin Amash and Ayanna Presley together introduced legislation to end qualified immunity uh, for police. So that is a bipartisan action that's already gaining a groundswell of support um, in Congress. And yes, municipalities are reconsidering police funding. The LAPD, uh, one of the most notorious police departments, uh, will be losing $150 million of funding in the next year. And that money is going to be put towards uh, building up the communities, in fact, that they that they serve. The idea of abolishing the police sounds radical, um, but at this point, it's not. Okay, I'm sure our conservative guests have some have some thoughts on that. But before we get to those, I, I do really want to though lean in especially to uh, your point about the criticism from military generals this week because it's a really important one, Christine. Um, General John Mattis, the president's former Secretary of Defense, was one of his fiercest critics on his language and actions um, regarding the the events of the past week. I've written for lots of outlets, and I can say most will not allow you to compare someone to Nazis unless they actually are one. Most, a lot of news outlets actually have a rule about that. But that's what General Mattis did. And so I want to read a bit of what he had to say. Um, He wrote, we must not be distracted by a small number of lawbreakers. The protests are defined by tens of thousands of people of conscience who are insisting that we live up to our values, our values as people and our values as a nation. He went on to say that, Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us. The general concluded by saying, instructions given by the military departments to our troops before the Normandy invasion reminded soldiers that the Nazi slogan for destroying us was divide and conquer. Our American answer is in union, there is strength. We must summon that unity to surmount this crisis, confident that we are better than our politics. He also said we must reject and hold accountable those in office who would make a mockery of our Constitution. Robert, can you ever recall a time when a president, particularly a conservative one, faced this kind of revolt from military 
brass. I know, and I know you identify as libertarian, Robert. So you likely have strong feelings on this. But but does this kind of criticism have any real impact outside of political nerds like those of us gathered here? And I say that as a compliment and term of endearment. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think it. Uh, I think it does, uh, and I. Th- it's. It's rather interesting, really, because uh, General Mattis uh, resigned in, if memory serves me correctly, December of two. December of two thousand eighteen, and it had to do with the the uh, our abandonment of the uh, our abandonment of the Kurds and and Syria. issues with Syria and so and, and so forth. Um, since he uh, since he he uh, retired, he put out a, he put out a book. There was a lot of it was very very clear that it, he was re- he was resigning um, on principle. There were has been lots and lots of criticism from the left uh, about the fact that he hadn't spoken out more as all different kinds of um, outrages uh, coming from the tr- Trump administration just 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 built up. Uh, I think that turned out, and being the great military mind that he was, it turned out to be a very smart and tactical um, uh, um, reluctance and holding back, um, uh, because he knows that somebody of his stature really has only one shot. Hmm. Uh, if he had been, if he had been out in um, all 2019 and going into impeachment and you know talking about how awful Trump was. It would have it would have been out there, and it wouldn't have ultimately made a big deal. Here we are in the middle of of an of an election year, and this his statement comes out the day the day after federal forces tear gassed pe- peaceful protesters in the park right across the street um, from um, from from the White House, basically to clear them out so the president could do a photo op. With the Bible in front of um, the Church of the Presidents, Saint uh, Saint Saint uh, John's. Uh, it, so when so when when Mattis, who is perceived by many as as being the you know the leading the, the leading military mind um, of of his generation, that has a that's going to have a ripple effect amongst others in the military, both those still in active service and those uh, and, the, and and those retired. It's it may it, whether it will move any votes, you know, d- down down at the state level. You know, that's to be that's that's to be determined. But definitely, somebody of his stature speaking out speaking at now at what we all admit is an is an historic is an historic moment. Um, I, I think um, sh- should have an, an effect that goes beyond, as you put it, uh, you know, uh, us political nerds. I'll be back with Michael Steele, former RNC chairman, Christine Emba of The Washington Post and Robert George of The New York Daily News to talk about Joe Biden and the future for black conservatives. You're listening to Left, Right and Center. You're hearing from our Left, Right and Center, and we want to hear from you, too. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. And download the free KCRW app to listen to Left, Right, and Center on demand. You know the Sugar Hill Gang for Rapper's Delight, one of the first ever rap songs. But when you consider the greatest rap albums of all time, it's hard to imagine anyone mentioning their first full length that dropped a year after in 1980. But sometimes... Legacy is not about the spark itself, but about the flame that spark causes. The Sugar Hill Gang, on Lost Notes, 1980, with me, 
Penny Fonderecki. Find it wherever you get podcasts. Back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm Kelly Goff, your center and columnist at The Daily Beast. On the right is Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee. On the left is Christine Imba, columnist at The Washington Post. And our special guest for the day is Robert A. George of the New York Daily News editorial board. It's been a weird couple of weeks for Joe Biden. He got a lot of bad headlines for an appearance in which he said, you ain't black if you support Trump. And then this week, it seems a lot of the people who were ridiculing him for that statement now seem to be desperately hoping he manages to win because of Trump's own performance in recent days. And of course, um, not too long ago, he got in trouble for saying 10 to 15 percent of Americans are not good people. Some of them are likening it to Hillary Clinton's infamous deplorables comment. Christine, I want to start with you. How would you rate Joe Biden's response to the aftermath of George Floyd's death? I'll say up front that I that I'm not a huge Joe Biden fan, that Joe Biden was not my uh, first choice, I would say, uh, in the Democratic primary. Um, But I think that he's done a pretty good job in the past uh, several weeks and months, actually, by, you know, sitting back and letting uh, Donald Trump unravel himself. That said, this week, um, (laughs) this week, though, I think that he has, you know, taken the opportunities where possible to... um, show himself in a presidential, I might even say, light, in that compared to Trump's constant uh, disunity, um, inflaming speech, Joe Biden has, you know, made speeches, made appearances that seem geared towards creating unity, um, creating a vision of hope. That said, you know, I'm I'm more interested in a vision of hope that is forward-looking rather than a return to normal, because as we're realizing this week, um, normal is not actually that great. Um, but I think that Joe Biden has, has been doing a pretty decent job so far. I know we don't normally focus on the horse race on this show, but I feel I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, are, are Amy Klobuchar's vice presidential dreams officially over because of her controversial prosecutorial record? In Minnesota, and if so, who's the new front runner, Christine? Do you think? Yes, I think that clubmentum is is over. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hadn't heard that. You know, actually. I, <laughs> okay. Um, I I have to say I'm actually not sure who the uh, vice presidential front runner is at this moment. Um, Joe Biden has said that he wants a female vice president. There have been a number of statements that at this moment um, he should pick a black female vice president. Uh, and I would actually push back against that instinct um, because, you know, as as I think I said earlier, uh, this question, this problem, this persistent wound in our body politic is not going to be fixed by symbolism. Um, you know, having a black vice president uh, is not going to change anything. I think we need a vice president who um, can enact policy, who has ideas, uh, who can, you know, push this movement forward. Um and right now, it's not clear um, who that is going to be or who Joe Biden will pick. But I do think that one thing we are seeing is that, uh, and one thing that I'm hopeful about with uh, Biden is that he does seem able to be influenced uh, by other members of his party. 
and by the national mood. Um, and I think that the right vice presidential candidate could um, push him to begin to look at and perhaps embrace some of the more radical but necessary policies. Well, I actually wrote a piece for the Daily Beast um, echoing some of your sentiments, namely that I care less about uh, symbolism and much more about meaningful change. And so for me, unfortunately, you know, politics often works this way, as I explained in the piece, which is by very definition of the way the optics of politics works. We all knew that if Barack Obama was the presidential nominee, the vice presidential nominee would not be a black person. And I believe that if Joe Biden were to choose a black woman as vice president, it's very unlikely that if elected, he would nominate one to the Supreme Court. And I actually feel the power in, in that role is so much more significant, whereas I feel like the vice president is usually someone who seems affable and likes to travel. You know what I mean? And I and I and I actually feel like we might need a little more at this particular moment. Our vice presidents have been much more substantive um, since uh, Bush Cheney. Uh, they the, the the role the role of the vice president has changed considerably. Michael, are you insinuating Dan Quayle was not substantive? Because no, I think a I'm lot of insinu- people. I'm not insinuating that at all. I'm just talking about their ability to influence the outcome <laughs> of things. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think um, you've been on the other side in presidential campaigns and and strategy. So, what do you think of 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 Congresswoman Dimming's a black former? police chief in Congress who's a devout Christian. Thoughts? Okay, so, all right, let's unpack this. So <laughs> when Joe, the week Joe Biden announced uh, he was running for president, I was on air at MSNBC, and I, and I declared rather emphatically um, that he would be the nominee of the Democratic Party. And everyone looked at me like I had four heads, and, and, and it's like, oh, my God, no, we're not going back down that way. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. You need to talk to your base. You need to talk to your people out there because your people are going to go with Joe Biden. And, and they did. At the same time, I said his, his uh, best choice for vice president would be Amy Klobuchar. Uh, because the 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 key essential part of any presidential campaign when it comes to your vice presidential pick is what do you give me that I don't already have or that I can't already get? Um, and it is not it is not taken in the light of taking things, groups, individuals, communities, whatever for granted. It is the it is the the very raw political calculation. How do I get to two hundred and seventy electoral votes? And if you can deliver Michigan for me and Wisconsin, if you can deliver Iowa and Missouri, if you can deliver Kansas and Oklahoma, guess what? I'm going to put you on my vice presidential radar because you're going to give me something that I cannot get on my own. And that is true for Joe Biden, as it was true for Ronald Reagan, which is why he cut the deal with the moral majority and put a pro-life plank in the Republican platform for the first time in its history in 1980. It is why George Bush cut the deal uh, that he cut with Dick Cheney, because it it brought a a quarter of the Republican base that was uh, suspicious of yet another New England-type republicanism. Um, this sort of soft republicanism coming um, uh, back into the White House. So Joe Biden's got to cut his deal. Uh, I think that if I'm looking at the the playing field right now, there are three potential players that will make a difference for Joe, um, two of him more so than uh, the third. I think at the top of the list, she, she has supplanted Klobuchar, is Governor Whitmer of Michigan. 
um, because she is a governor <laughs> and she's governing through coronavirus. She has had to do battle with the federal government in the form of the fight of the president of the United States and has stood her ground. She is strong. She's she's a fighter. She's popular in her state. Um, and I think that that governing experience is going to be helpful. And she brings Michigan. <laughs> and if we recall, Donald Trump got to the presidency because he won Michigan um, a, a, among other two other states. And I think uh, Amy Klobuchar, the Klobentum, or however you put that, I love the way you put that. <laughs> um, I don't think it's dead. Um, oh, I think I, I think that it's see it's dead for people inside the beltway and I mean that euphemistically I think the vast majority of the country has not been paying attention to any of this this broad discussion about Amy Klobuchar's time as prosecutor oh, that's interesting and a, and a lot of folks to the extent that they do she did what every prosecutor in the country was doing at the time so it was not out of step with what was happening elsewhere around the nation hmm. Um it's the same thing with Joe Biden and and uh, his vote on on the crime bill. What every other Democrat got a pass and not Joe. The country looks at these things a lot differently than those of us who have our nose so you know down to the period. Um, in, you're, in the you're leaving us hanging though. Who's the third? It's Val. I think oh. Val Demings. I think Val. I think Val is. Uh, been pushed up a, a little bit more. Um, although I still contend that Joe and uh, Joe picking a, a black female presents him with a white female problem. I think I couldn't disagree um, more uh, with my good friend, uh, my good friend uh, Michael Steele, uh, on the on the idea though of uh, of a, that a, Amy Klobuchar is still is still in the mix because uh, it it was as we said as I was saying earlier. Um, a, a lot, a lot happens, and a lot changes. Very, very has been very, happening very, very quickly um, this year. It was, ju it was just two weeks. It was two weeks ago that we were um, talking about Joe Biden and the interview with Charlemagne the God and all of this, all of this kind of stuff. But uh, if, if he did, I, I, I do think a, a while back Amy Klobuchar was the perfect pick for him. And there was a lot of chemistry between the two of them, et cetera, et cetera. And as 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 Michael said, it, it, she um, brought in a lot of those Midwestern states. Um, because of what we've had, what has happened over the last over the last over the last week, uh, if he does put her on the ticket, um, the very the, the 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 full next week minimum. Is going to be an investigation into her prosecutor, prosecutorial rec record. It's going to have all, and she's going to have to be ex explain it. Um, Joe Biden is going to be having to explain it. And what you want um, when you select you, your vice president, you want to have a week or two of momentum from that from 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 that moment. You want the the ticket to be going around it to the extent it's possible in a pandemic. But you want the ticket to be trying to go around the country, introducing themselves, and you know stirring up the base, stirring stirring up the country. You don't want to be having all these kind of um, uh, conversations. And uh, uh, Amy Klobuchar's problem on the prosecutorial side would then uh, re-emphasize uh, a further uh, discussion about um, 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 Biden's questionable questionable votes over the years. They weren't questionable at the time, but in hindsight, they have been. So I don't think that's something. I don't think that's something that you want. 
I want to propose left, right, and center the after show starring Michael Steele and Robert George, where (laughs) (laughs) two conservatives go back and forth over democratic issues. It's fascinating. But we have got to, but we've actually got to move on because there are actually primaries this week and we haven't discussed them and we have to. Um, A lot of people didn't seem to know there were primaries this week, even people that I consider, you know, people who follow politics. I want to just tick off some of the biggest primary headlines, though. Ferguson, Missouri, where Michael Brown was shot, a key moment in the Black Lives Matter movement, just selected its first black mayor, Ella Jones. And in Iowa, Steve King lost to Republican Randy Feenstra. For those who don't know, King had been denounced by and ostracized by much of the GOP for espousing white nationalist views. I've heard two takes on what this loss means. One theory is that Republicans simply voted for the more electable candidate in the primary. But the other theory is that part of why King lost is because Republican voters are ready to confront racism in the party and are ready to clean house of those who indulge racist rhetoric. I should note in Texas, Republican Governor Greg Abbott of my home state demanded the resignations of two GOP officials for spreading conspiracy theories that the killing of George Floyd was staged. Governor Abbott, who is a conservative and a big supporter of the police, called Floyd's death a crime and an act of police brutality. Many of us also um, saw former President George W. Bush's incredibly eloquent statement on the need to confront institutional racism. Does this mark a turning point for the GOP in terms of race and how it addresses race? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know how you know? The answer is no. What What did every senator do when they walked down that hallway to their meeting and my colleague at MSNBC, Casey Hunt, asked them one question. Was the president right to do what he did uh, in Lafayette Park? What do you think about the killing of George Floyd? And they had their, put their heads down and walked past without answering the question. If you can't confront, if you can't confront that question about the president bastardizing religion mm. for his political purposes... And as an affront to every Christian that, you know, calls themselves Republican, where's the outrage? Can I, Michael, can I follow up then? And I'm going to ask you a candid question. Have you, I know that Senator Tim Scott, the lone black Republican in the Senate, has talked openly about his experiences with racial profiling, even after becoming a senator. Have you ever discussed experiences? Well, have you had experiences with racial profiling? And oh if you have, God. have you discussed them in front of your Republican am, right? <laughs> colleagues? Right. No, I know. I, as soon as I said it, I was like, mm. is he alive? Is he breathing? Yes. <laughs> so as um, in case everyone has not figured out, this is an all black panel today. It was not part of the master plan, but it is one. And I'm really glad, actually, for this conversation. Um, we happen to it's have never part of the master's plan. No. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, I said master plan. Oh, wow. But this is what happens with an all-black panel. You so <laughs> you everyone, love to see it. Everyone oh, gets really comfortable. It's like family, um, even when we don't all agree. But what I was getting at, Michael, is have you had candid conversations with your Republican colleagues about the incidents of racism and discrimination you've personally experienced? Have you yes. shared those with them? Yes. I've shared with them the experience that I had with them. In other words, uh, let me point out to you what you just did in this moment that is a problem for me. Oh, okay. All right. So the the reality of it is, look, just to give you just how tone deaf and stupid 
many still remain in this space. Not just two years ago, and I've been out of the RNC for, at that point, about nine years or so. Matt Slap allow at, at the at the CPAC dinner, his his national spokesman, their communications director, stood up at that dinner and announced, "Well, you know, the only reason we elected Michael Steele chairman of the Republican Party is because he was black." <gasps> All right, he said that. He, yes, and then he comes on my he radio show. He said that. Comes on my radio show and not apologizes. And not say, oh, well, you know, this, it, you know, the, the gentleman's been fired or demoted or reprimanded. He doubled down on it. Double, all, all, with me sitting there and everyone, everyone who, who was watching, who was there live and, of course, listening to us said they could tell it was Michael, every Michael, we don't understand. We don't. I don't understand why you'd be so emotional about these things, I believe, is what he said. Uh, yes. He said, why yeah. are you so emotional? Why do you get so emotional about this? Why don't you? Sh you should have more grace. Oh, so I need to have grace in the face of your racism. Kiss my anyway. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm just telling you. So there will be drinks at the after show, everyone. If you think for one minute that these, these, these little, these little vignettes mm. of platitude and oh, I'm so sorry, and you're going to be fired because you said that, or that is not, that is not an indication of anything substantive within the core of the party itself. Mm. Remember, Donald Trump is still the titular head of the party. Mm. And he was the man who set the standard when he said they're good people on both sides. And everyone kind of went, oh, yeah, OK, yeah, that, we'll go with that. You know, there's a sort of a meme going around about how, you know, Steve King has been primaried and that's just the removal of yet another Confederate monument uh, <laughs> from the Republican <laughs> Party and from American society. And it's funny because it's true, but it also speaks to something deeper, which is that we can remove all the Confederate monuments we want, but that doesn't mean that racism is gone or that anything has changed. Um, so yeah, we'll have to see, we'll have to see more. And wow, that walk, uh, that walk when Casey Hunt was asking about responses to the president's photo op was fascinating and terrifying. The number of senators who said that they didn't want to miss lunch. Right. Instead of answering the question or that they uh, hadn't been online and didn't know what had happened was flabbergasting. I can't help solve racism because I'm on my way to get a Big Mac, you know? Right. Like, like, how hungry are you? <laughs> the, the, the thing, well, this issue, this, 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 the particular question, though, of, you know, race within the Republican Party. I mean, you, you, you could, we could do two, three more shows on this and, and Michael and I could give you all kinds of, all kinds of water <laughs> stories. He became, he became chairman, he became chairman in, in 2009. Um, seven years, seven years before that, um, um, Trent Lott, was the then mm. uh, was the incoming uh, uh, Senate um, Senate majority um, Senate majority leader, and all th these issues came back of uh, his work his working with this group called the uh, the the conservative uh, this the conservative citizens council uh, yes the the council the council of concerned citizens yes citizens council exactly. And and they were basically a quasi KKK. Group they were the white collar clan. So I, I interviewed their a, head a, a couple what, times by phone. Yes, exactly. Now um, going back uh, in 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 ninety in ninety nine and two thousand, I was the coalition's director at the RNC. Um, the, 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 lots of associations with the CCC 
um, had had become an issue even then. I went to some of the higher ups at the at the RNC and said to them, "Oh, maybe we could get a group of black Republican activists together, meet with um, Senator Lott, and maybe we can all put out a, a, a statement, put in some kumbaya. You know, he, he gets some he he gets a little bit of a good press for from for hanging with us. We get a little bit of cachet within the party. You know, let's see what we can do." I, I I did the nice thing, went behind the scenes, tried to get some discussions, got slapped down saying, well, you know, this isn't really your role and blah, blah, blah. So so three years later, um, the, the lot stuff comes up because he was at a uh, 100th birthday um, for Strom Thurmond, for Strom Thurmond mm-hmm. and he said, oh, you know, if only he'd become president, we wouldn't have all of these kind of things. And so a number of people ended up speaking out. Uh, a number of black Republicans spoke, speaking out, and, th- and some white conservatives as, as, as well, and and, and lot lost his job as 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 ma- as majority leader. Then fast forward to you know two thousand nine with the, the the point is these kind of things keep popping up within the re- within the Republican Party. They still want the cachet of right. Party of Lincoln, right. Party of Lincoln. You, you 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 can you can play Party of Lincoln bingo. Talking with um, talking talking with Republicans on how quickly they how quickly they will me- mention that as if nothing has happened in the um, right. uh, well hundred and fifty some years um, since um, since um, since 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 Lincoln so you know you know it's wonderful that the King was pushed out but he was he was pushed out because he lost all of his committee assignments and they wanted an effective congressman in there it it has nothing really to do with what the actual right. discussion. On, on race within the party um, uh, has to be about. I was actually joking, but now I really am making a pitch for you guys to have a spinoff where it's, it's <laughs> black conservatives talking inside political baseball, and I would listen to that show um, religiously. Speaking of religion, before we go to a break, I just have to ask really quickly, um, Pat Robertson, who is one of the leading voices of the Christian right, um, really since Reagan, was critical of President Trump's actions this week. I know you called it bastardizing religion, Michael. He was The president was also denounced by a Catholic bishop and an Episcopal bishop. That seems to be a, a pretty clean sweep. Uh, does that have any impact <laughs> this election cycle in terms of religious voters? Because evangelicals have, have stood fairly strong with him because of abortion in the courts. Thoughts before we go to break? Real quick, uh, they, they will continue to stand very strongly with him because, um, you know, th- th- those leaders, uh, you know, certainly Bishop uh, Archbishop uh, Wilton Gregory here in Washington, D.C., um, you know, made it very clear where the Catholic Church stood. And, you know, the Knights of Columbus, who extended the invitation for the president to come up to the St. John Paul II uh, Center, um, have gotten more than an earful on that. Um, but the rank and file, um, you know, Christian conservative uh, still pretty much lockstep with the president. And I don't see the events of this week changing any of that. I've been talking with Christine Emba of The Washington Post, Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, and Robert George of The New York Daily News. We'll be back with more on Left, Right and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from all sides. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. Stream all episodes of Left, Right, and Center and our companion show, All the President's Lawyers, at kcrw.com slash podcasts or from the KCRW app.
Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com slash join. Back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your center, Kelly Goff of The Daily Beast. On the right is Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee. On the left is Christine Imba, columnist at The Washington Post. Our special guest today is Robert A. George of The New York Daily News. I was raised in a household where there is never an excuse to destroy a building. There is never an excuse to loot a business. You peacefully protest, and most of all, you vote in each and every election. That's how I was raised. You exercise your voice and your power. So I was surprised to read an academic paper published by professors Enos, Kaufman and Sands, I hope I got everyone's name right, uh, in the American Political Science Review last year that found that local voter registration and participation actually increased after the 1992 LA riots. And much of the participation from new voters triggered by the riots has held steady in the years since, which seems to indicate that, that contrary to what a lot of us may have thought, unrest of the magnitude that we've seen in the last week or so can strangely have a positive impact on our electorate, even some of the parts of that uh, activism that we don't necessarily see as a positive in the moment. Um, so I've, I've heard two schools of thought. Uh, one school of thought is these protests will galvanize voters of color and young people who stayed home last election cycle uh, to possibly help oust Donald Trump. But I've also heard people say that the destruction of buildings and looting will mobilize white voters who supported Trump last time, might have been on the fence this time, but will feel galvanized because of some of the destruction of the last week. I, I'm i not actually surprised by that um, study because I think it makes total sense. Um, there are several outcomes for protests. I mean, first, and the most obvious, um, is that they simply raise awareness of issues. Um, and by the visibility of the protests, and in this particular moment, not just the visibility of the protests, but by the vibrant sort of multi-cultural uh, nature, uh, the participation of young people, old people, black people, and white people in many different communities, um, they create the climate for change to become socially acceptable, um, for change to be able to be envisioned as a, a potential and perhaps normal thing by the general public. Um, also, protests, even perhaps violent protests, can have sort of a two-way effect. Um, they can make people afraid. Um, they can wake people up. And that could have the impact, a, a sort of backlash impact of saying, well, we're going to you know, not implement these policies because we're angry. Um, but honestly, that sort of alarm can also tell people, ordinary voters, okay, uh, actually, maybe we need to start implementing some of these changes or pushing back against police brutality or et cetera, et cetera, because we would really like this damage to stop. And the only way that we are going to get out of this uh, cycle of protest and violence is to begin to enact change. Um, and so for that reason, you know, I, I can understand why people are alarmed by alarmed by protests, alarmed by violence that sometimes erupts near protests. And I will note 
again, and we have to keep saying this, that these protests have primarily been extremely peaceful and that it's very unfair to say that a few, you know, um, isolated incidents or bad actors or even one night um, of violence can characterize the entire uh, system of protest. That that was the perfect segue into, I think, our conversation about media, because particularly during moments of racially charged civil unrest, people cite the Kerner Commission report, which was commissioned by then President Johnson just over 50 years ago to examine the causes of racial inequality and the unrest that stems from it. And while criticism of the role of the police is often cited when people look back at what the Kerner report told us about race in America, people often forget another major culprit the report blamed, which is the press. And I want to quickly read an excerpt from the report. It said, the journalistic profession has been shockingly backward in seeking out hiring and promoting Negroes. The press is too long basked in a white world looking out of it, if at all, with white men's eyes and white perspective. That is no longer good enough. I want to add that during a 2018 USA Today interview about the report, Senator Fred Harris, the last surviving senator from the Kerner Commission, said this. There was more sensationalism in covering the riots, not enough about the wretched conditions and the racism that created the ghettos. Even now, it's easier for the media to cover the events instead of the conditions. The report was from 50 years ago, I must say, and that interview with Senator Harris is from two years ago, but very eerily prescient, particularly because an analysis by Philip Bump of the Washington Post showed that Fox News and Fox Business mentioned rioting or rioters six times as much as CNN has over the past week, even though most protests have been peaceful. In the media newsletter Fourth Watch, Wesley Lowry also was quoted as referring to a lot of cable news coverage as, quote, riot porn. So how much is media to blame for escalating conflicts during this time as opposed to de-escalating? Michael, I will start with you since you are a popular presence on cable news. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm just not buying any of this crap. Uh, you know, it just uh, because all of this, that th- that report and where we see going on now doesn't go anywhere near the problem. Look, as an elected, it's easy to blame the media. And look, if rightly so, the way they cover stuff, if it bleeds, it leads. That's we know that, right? But as an elected official, if you know there's rotten in the community, why aren't you doing something about it? You sat on the damn commission, you studied it. Why? Why are you now pointing at the finger at the finger at the media and going, well? You know, the media is only covering this part of it, and the same is true today. We know, we know what the systemic issues are. We just woke up to the fact that black poverty exists. Well, it should should be noted, it's worth mentioning that this report was not something that President Johnson got behind trotting out once he actually saw. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, so to your point, to your point. No, but I'm just I'm just I'm just staking, you know, a place in the ground from 50 years ago and and tying the knot today. I mean, so in all that time. We know what the situation is here. Here at the end of the day, why don't white people like black people? What is so? Can we answer that question? Because that gets to the heart of a whole lot of stuff. Why are you so afraid when I'm walking down the street that you have to cross to the other side? Why can't I go to Central Park and say to you, "Hey, could you follow the regulations, ma'am?" Because the the sign says "leash your damn dog," and you call the cops and lie and say that I somehow threatened you. Why can't I go to a Starbucks and sit down and have a cup of coffee for the same amount of time as the white guy sitting two tables from me, yet you call the cops on me? 
So can we answer those questions? And then you can begin to talk about how it's covered and what people are saying, what policies, because at the end of the day, this still for the last 401 years has been about the relationship between white people and black people. You brought us here in chains. You made us walk and you made us work your fields. We built your damn economy. We put your kids into the best schools in the world. And yet you still look at us when we try to climb out of the hole you put us in and, and, and say to us, oh, geez, oh, my God, they're rioting. Oh, uh, really? Another thing is, a, as, a, as, a, as a member of the villainous and another member of the villainous media um, on, the, on the panel, a certain, a whole lot has changed, has changed since 1967 or 1968 when that, um, when, when that report came out. And part of, part of which is it's not just how things are being played on MSNBC, CNN, Fox, or, 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 or what have you. Why are all these protests happening over the last 10 days? It's because somebody had uh, the most powerful media instrument uh, that's in the world, a cell phone camera, a cell phone, and, and saw for eight minutes um, the, the, a, a white police officer on the neck of, of, a, of, a, of, a, black, of a black man who was, um, uh, who was uh, screaming, I can't breathe, and calling for, and calling, calling for his mother. That's the media that has trans that is uh, that has transformed this transformed this mo movement. Yeah, now certainly the legacy um, media still has its responsibility to try and put things in context. We mentioned the Will, Will Smith the Will Smith quote. That's exactly that's what's exactly what's happening. Um, um, Michael and I are are black men of a certain age, and we'll know the reference of Gil Scott Heron. Um, the revolution will not be televised. It is not being televised. It's being it is being recorded though. It's being recorded by individual you know by individuals with their cell phones, and that is what's that that is what's ultimately educating the new um, uh, the new the new generation. And that's why this converse that that's why you had a, a bunch of you know predominantly white kids in Idaho, for example, doing their own protests. That's why this moment is somewhat different um, th than it was uh, in the in, in the 1960s or even even 30 years ago with the uh, with the Rodney King with the Rodney King riots. Before we go, though, Christine, I want to go back to something we uh, referenced at the top of the show, which is there were a number of controversies related to coverage of the events of the past week. Reporters of color at the Philadelphia Inquirer staged a walkout over the headline "Buildings Matter Too," a play on Black Lives Matter, which the paper later apologized for. Meanwhile, in response to the immense backlash triggered by the publication of Senator Tom Cotton's op-ed, which, as I said, we discussed earlier, the New York Times announced they are curbing the number of op-eds they publish. A number of New York Times staffers actually tweeted, running this put Black New York Times staffers in danger. Did these two outlets get it wrong? And do these missteps speak to the need for more diversity in newsrooms, Christine? I mean, I think that you can see from the backlash that uh, they got something wrong. Um, <laughs> in the case of the Philadelphia Inquirer, I would say that that headline was um, made a mockery of uh, the phrase Black Lives Matter, and in doing so, made a mockery of Black lives. Mm. Um, and that is wrong. Um, in terms of the Tom Cotton op-ed, as we already discussed, there are a lot of problems with that. Um, but I think what the backlash within the Times revealed um, was the lack of participation in the editorial and decision-making process um, from 
editors of color, from editors and writers of different perspectives who might ultimately be influenced by the things that are published by the New York Times. You know, one of the things that is helpful and necessary to discuss in newsrooms and in general um, is that we in the United States, you know, we we love free speech. We love the exchange of ideas. Um, and there is sometimes a fetishization of ideas, you know, that, you know, we're just talking. This is an intellectual argument. Uh, I'm being the devil's advocate. Um, but sometimes in, you know, privileged spaces like, you know, prominent newsrooms, it's easy to forget that these aren't just arguments that we're having in sort of a an open headspace. Um, these arguments, these statements that we are making, uh, hold people's lives in the balance. Um, you know, it may be fun for, you know, some editor to propose a hypothetical about, you know, the military opening fire on protesters in a park. Uh, those protesters are real people. They are in a real park. Um, and, and, some of the, you, and some of them are journalists. Per- <laughs> and some of them yeah. are the journalists the journalists who work in your pages and, um, you know, promoting uh, those ideas, it may be a hypothetical for you, but real people will get hurt. And this is this also reflects on how we talk about immigration, welfare, any other things. Robert A. George, columnist at the New York Daily News. Thanks so much for joining us, Robert. Great to be here. We've reached that time once again for our famed left, right, and center rants, featuring pet peeves from across the political spectrum. Christine Imba, it's your soapbox. So very quickly, first of all, um, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who reached out to me after uh, last week's podcast, which um, I didn't have time to respond. I couldn't respond to all of them, but they were meaningful. Um, But now I'm going to rant actually about the phrase black bodies and other distancing language. Um, If anything, the George Floyd memorial service on Thursday with the stories from his friends and his family about his hugs and the sandwiches that he liked as a kid showed that he was more than a body. He was a person with life and dreams and ambition. And these protests are now larger than he is, and the discourse is too. But let's also remember that we're talking about people, not objects, and that systems are made up of individuals and individual action. It's not helpful to rail against violence enacted upon black bodies if you don't have a single person of color in your network and thus have trouble conceiving of black people as individuals. I'm not a body, I'm a human being. Don't dehumanize me with your language. You know, we want to talk about systemic racism and post things on our Instagram feeds, but are you still actively participating in oppressive and exclusionary systems? How integrated are the schools you, an individual, send your kids to? What does your neighborhood look like? It's great for white allies to push police to stop using chokeholds, which frankly will not have an impact on their day-to-day lives. But are these same allies agitating for redistributive policies, which might come at the expense of something for you? I just want to remind people to take this from an ideas level, from a fun protest to go to marching level, to enacting change in their real lives. Otherwise, all of the things that you post don't matter. Michael Steele, what's your rant? My rant's going to be awful compared to that very thoughtful rant by Christine. But my mine goes direct to toilet paper. Why are we are still out of toilet paper? Look, I mean, I don't know how many rolls you need. I don't. <laughs> but at the end of the day, there's a brother or sister coming in after you who's going to need some too. 
So the reality, I, that just became, over the course of the last three months, has just become a real annoying symbol that while COVID-19 was ravaging um, our communities, that we still found some space to be selfish. For my rant, my grandmother is nearly 100 years old. And when we talk, we talk about the usual things grandmothers and granddaughters do, such as her concern that I'm not eating enough vegetables. But we also talk about the hours she spent picking cotton in the hot sun for much of her life. We talk about the poverty she grew up in and how despite only having an elementary school education, she always dreamed of owning her own home one day and seeing her children and grandchildren pursue dreams that were so out of reach for her, she didn't even know to dream them herself. She remembers lynchings, the murders of innocent black boys like Emmett Till, and many black men killed by police. When she was my age, it would have been hard for her to dream of a world where those who commit such heinous crimes actually face any semblance of justice. And yet the officers responsible for the death of George Floyd have been arrested. Grandma's hearing is not so great now, or else I would have welcomed her on the show today. But if she were here, I can tell you that she would say that as bad as things seem today, our nation has seen worse. Black people have seen worse. But we're better off today than we were yesterday. And tomorrow and the day after that will be better still. I have to believe that. I owe that to her and everyone else who came before me. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank Michael Steele, Christine Emba, and Robert A. George. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Fay. Our technical director is J.C. Swadek. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. I'm Kelly Goff. Thanks for joining us, and tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW.